something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Car Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm your host, Scott Benjamin. And I am another host, Kurt Guerin, and we have a third arm in the room, and that is... That's true. My name is Ben Bolin. I am a, I am a Coco host here, uh, <laughs> I, I believe. And this is part two of our, of our two-part series on the Iditarod, the race, not the trail. If, you have, if you're just tuning in now, do yourself a favor, hit pause, we'll wait, and listen to part one of the, uh, the series, wherein we dive into some of the history a little bit of the nuts and bolts about the race, uh, and then, only then, push play on this one, because now the um, the rubber's hitting the road, or I should say the rails are hitting the snow, mm-hmm. right? Very clever. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. 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 Stayed up pretty late working on that one, so I'm glad you guys, I'm glad <laughs> yeah. you guys are into that. Uh, today, we're going to dig into, uh, I, I would say, some of the science behind the equipment, a little bit more about the race itself. Uh, and of course, the the lovable, uh, hardworking dogs that make the entire thing possible. The race itself, when last we left, Scott, you were telling Kurt and I about the two different routes. And we were talking about why these might change or alternate from one year to the next. Let's, let's pick up there because there are checkpoints for the routes. That's how, how the race works. Mm-hmm. Uh, every team has to hit certain points along the trail. There are 26 checkpoints on the northern route, 27 on the southern route. And when people hit those checkpoints, the mushers have to sign in. They have to give throw the John, John Hancock on something. This has a couple of different functions, if we're guessing. One would be, of course, safety. Make sure that no one disappeared or something bad happened. Sure. And two, of course, to prevent cheating, to make sure that no one just tried to hot rod around, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and somehow take a shortcut. And the they, they have to sign in with their dog, like the dog team. They, mm-hmm. They've got you know, pulling the sled at that moment because they do begin to 
drop dogs as we go through this race. So they start mm-hmm. out the race maybe with 12 dogs, mm-hmm. and then they drop down to 11 dogs, and then 10, and then 9, and then eventually by the time they get to the finish, they might be down to as few as, what, 6, 7, 8, eight dogs maybe. Yeah. Um, and, I think you know, five have to finish. Is that correct? I, that yeah, might be five right. Five have to cross the line. Yeah. Yeah. Five, five cross the line, you're right. And these dogs are all, of course, well, we could talk about the care of dogs too, but um, the dogs are, when I say dropped, I mean that they're you know either carried back and... and Handed off to a handler that you know travels along with the race along you know alongside of the team, mm-hmm. um, not not during the race itself obviously, but they go from town to town in a much more efficient way and meet mm-hmm. them there or they have them in place ahead of time. Yeah, and uh, you know it's a dog that's worn out or injured or you know whatever the case may be, it just needs a, a break, a rest. Sometimes uh, so they'll they ride that. along in the sled. Yeah, they ride in the sled. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's uh, that's part of the benefit of some of the different sled designs is that they can carry dogs that are somehow in need of that to the next checkpoint and, and safely deliver them. Yeah, a good musher is like a, a combination cartographer, sledder, dog trainer, veterinarian, right, EMT at some points, you know. Oh, yeah, they wear many hats. And they have, uh, they, I think this is important. They have drop bags that they pick up at checkpoints, and those drop bags have supplies that they use, right, to to replenish their stores of food. But there's also a lot of stuff for the dogs involved. Yeah, that's part of the equipment, right? Oh, that's another thing that I learned at that uh, that camp. We talked to a guy that was uh, he, the the guy that was kind of running our dog sled that you know the the wheeled one that we were talking about. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm, this is a long time ago. I think his, and the name that popped in my head immediately was Mars. And I thought, okay, who's Mars? All right. It, w- there is a, a musher on the Iditarod named Wade Mars, and his his um, career span is just about the right time for when this was. So I, I'm assuming that the person that I met and talked to was Wade Mars. Cool. I, I'm sure that it was Wade Mars because uh, it just popped into my head right when we were talking about this. But one thing that he re- told me that just stood in my head for for a long time, in fact, I'm still thinking about it, the dog booties, the booties that the dogs wear yeah. on, their, on their feet. And you think, oh, that's kind of funny. That's kind of very Hollywood, right? You know, they're wearing little dog shoes around. You know, it looks like something a little poodle would wear on, uh, uh, you know, um, Rodeo Avenue when they're shopping. Right? It's, <laughs> right. it's not that way at all. These are for these are to prevent um, you know injuries from ice and rocks and you know things like that that they might encounter on the trail or abrasions. Um, it's these little sacks almost that they put on and they're held on with uh, is it is it leather or Velcro or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just just like little socks they put on every dog's foot, and of course they throw these off while they're racing while they're running. So these guys will go through the the mushers will spend a significant amount of money on dog booties every year in the training camp, in, you know, the race itself and other races, you know, qualifying races or whatever, you know, because the, the Iditarod is not the only race they're going to be in, in, for in sure. a dog race for the year. They, that's just not the way it works. But they will go through, they buy thousands of dog booties every year for every team, which I thought was incredible. Thousands of dog booties every year. That's got to be a huge expense. Yeah, because think about it. You can't just, if you want them to be comfortable, you can't just give them those dog booties during the race. They have to wear these weird paw shoes during training as well so that it becomes a normal customary thing for the animals. Sure, and you know, the supplies that you were talking about that are shipped to each checkpoint, Yeah, uh, there's limits on this, but I think, and I, I'm pretty sure that I read this in the rule book, I can verify this in just a little bit when we yeah, get to this, but... Yeah. I think it was uh, like sixty pounds per package is what they what they send, and that's like that's dog food. That's everything that they need. The musher needs, of course, because they got to carry everything with them. They have to be self sufficient. Um, but 
the dogs eat a tremendous amount of food, and it's this really high energy. Um, I don't, I don't know what they put in it to make it so high energy. I'm sure it's a lot of protein, probably a lot of fat, if I had to guess, because they're going to be yeah. burning so much energy. Uh, but a lot of this is dog food. Now imagine that you've got to ship sixty pounds of supplies to. 26 or 27 different checkpoints. That that right there is a, a pretty huge logistical nightmare. Yeah, and it gets expensive quickly, too. Yeah, right? that is a lot of... That's like 1,200 pounds of stuff that you got to get ready ahead of time and know where you're going to need it and, and make sure it's there. Yeah, and they're already carrying gear with them that stays with them the entire time, like headlamps for night travel, yeah. Tools uh, and parts to repair a sled. Can you imagine how terrible it is? <laughs> the oh wrong screw gosh, comes yeah. loose. Yep. Uh, batteries, of course, for the lamps. And, and you know, nowadays people are carrying radios with them. Uh, you know, maybe they're listening to their favorite podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they probably, yeah, uh, hey, maybe they are. Maybe they are. <laughs> uh, the interesting thing is, this reminded me a little bit about some of the restrictions placed on long-haul truckers. Uh, every team has three mandatory rests they have to take during the Iditarod. And this is in the rules. It is, yes. Yeah, they have to take a... Is it a well, there's a 12-hour layover, and then there's a 24-hour layover. Is that right? Well, there's a 24-hour layover that they can take at any point, yeah. at any checkpoint. So it's a strategy game. Yeah, they, they decide when the dogs need it, when they need it, yeah. what the weather is doing, all that. That plays into when they take that 24-hour break. Right. And then they have two mandated eight-hour layovers they have to take. Uh, one is at any checkpoint along the Yukon River. And then the one that never they, they can never move is the eight-hour stop at White Mountain. Okay. So there, I, I think you make a fantastic point there, Scott. With the flexibility of those two other places, there are there are ample opportunities to uh, to give yourself that last burst of energy to recover from a particularly arduous leg. Uh, but there are also opportunities to fall behind because mm-hmm. what if you are in the lead? You know what I mean? And I, I don't know whether this has ever happened. And you're like two checkpoints away, but you haven't burned your 24-hour layover yet. <laughs> And you have to sit <laughs> yeah. there. I, again, I don't know if this happened, but can you imagine? Like you have to sit there for some reason, and you're watching the uh, you're watching the former number two and the former number three neck and neck, and you're thinking. Maybe I should ask him to pause for like twelve hours. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you don't have uh, like that pause button for them, right? I mean, it's only right. on your, your own your own account. And you know, I think I said twelve hour layover. I, I'm mistaken. You're right. It was eight hours. But uh, yeah, that's got to be frustrating to have to take that time, that downtime for some of them. Others might wish it was more, and I think others do take more. It's all up to you. It's just uh, how quickly do you want to finish this? And this is a, a, a race of days, and you know, it's not like a race of you know hours and minutes. It's a very long drawn out process right where you have to play yeah. the long game i mean the long game we're talking more than a week it's a it's a long uh it's a long journey from anchorage to nome and they uh i mean they have to kind of account for the unforeseen maybe that, sure. that's the way they have to do it so if you take that break early on uh what happens if there's a blizzard uh, you know up ahead that you don't know about or you're not aware of that's it's on its way that uh, you know suddenly cuts your visibility to zero and you know the temperature is 80 below zero yeah um f- that's fahrenheit that's not <laughs> well i guess it would be worse than celsius <laughs> right 80 below- oh maybe it's not that bad then right uh, 80 below fahrenheit that's uh, if it's 80 below celsius look, look out that's yeah. like uh, that's like you're on neptune or something 
No, I'm just kidding. I but that, I mean, that's a really important point, though, <laughs> that people, there are three mandatory minimum layover times, sure. but anything can happen. So people end up taking extra time. This is like this is like pit strategy in racing, right? Or yeah. a few, refueling strategy, or any. Every yeah. race has its own strategy and and how people like to run it. Even like horse racing or something like that. You know, like you, do you hold back and then give it the all out there at the end, of the last stretch, or do you just consistently go? Or you know, wh- how do you do it? How do you play it? Do you sandbag and then uh, and then go <laughs> for it at the end, um, or just just go for it right out of the gate? I mean, it all depends on the horses. I guess it depends on your team, your dog team, yeah. and your ability. You know, your you know you know how how much you can take. And again, this is a, a, a true test of human endurance as well. Um, not many people are, are fit for, a, for a, a trip like this, really, when you yeah. think about it. I mean, I get cold walking to my car right now. It's the mid, it's mid-30s here in Atlanta. And I, I don't know, I guess I've become kind of a weather wimp, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's cold. Oh, it's colder man. at night, you know, it gets down to the 20s. Yeah. I don't want to take the dog out to go to the bathroom out in the backyard or something. You, you know, need it's like, a sled. It's, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be uncomfortable anymore, you know? <laughs> and look at them. They're, I mean, really, blizzards, yeah. 80. They, they, I think they've recorded temperatures as low as 100 below zero. And that's, that's wind chill, of course. Right. Wind chill. But have you ever felt like... 40 below zero, uh, you know, wind chill, it's, it's awful. Like, they tell you not to expose your skin to it. They tell you that you can't go outside. I mean, can't, are you not supposed to breathe when it's, it's that low? It's, it's 40 below is cold <laughs> enough. I, we've talked about, I grew up in the Midwest, and, like, I remember my dad going out to his older cars that had, you know, vinyl seats, and you sit in them, and they, they crack all to hell. It's like you broke a chocolate bar that's been in there for a freezer <laughs> or something, you know? It's like, it's like that. I mean, it's, it's that brittle. So can you imagine what a hundred below feels like? And they really do race through that. Hmm. It's it's insane. Oh, it, fe- it feels like you know what I would do it to say that I had had that experience. Yeah, but what if it kills you? Well, then I won't get to say that I had that experience. <laughs> They'll say, "Well, Ben had one third of that experience," and that's when, that's when he and that's how it ended for him. Yeah, we would be left. Uh, to spread the word of Ben. Oh, thanks, oh, I thought guys. You, I thought you were going to say his ashes on the trail. We can do that, too. Yeah. <laughs> wow, this escalated pretty quickly, guys. <laughs> took a turn. Uh, yeah, I, I guess but, so. Um, but let's let's stay with the trail. Let's <laughs> let's talk a little bit about this because we know that it can be dangerous. There have been canine deaths, especially, so a lot of the rules are focused on safety. Those Those layovers are not just to make things interesting, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, I, I believe, as as we said at the top of part one, this is an incredibly brutal experience, right? Definitely. It's a race of endurance. There's a lot of factors that go into being a top performer versus being just one of the people that are there to finish. It, this this race, we keep saying a test of, of endurance or physical challenge or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. we, however you want to label that. Mm-hmm. It were, this, the, the Iditarod will routinely come up on lists of the ultimate tests of human endurance, of how much can a human stand, whether it's heat, cold, time, you know, whatever the case may be. And there's a lot of absurd world records that people have set that are tests of endurance. And I don't need, I don't think we have a chance to go into all those, but the, the contest, the test that uh, the people routinely do year after year, those are the ones that I find probably the most interesting. And I did a ride, it happens to come up on every list that I've looked at so far. And a couple of them, just so you get an idea of what is on these lists, there's, there's the race across America, um, which is a bicycle ride that goes across mm-hmm. the United States, all the way across, all 3,000 miles. 
And it's essentially like a, they call it a, a like a one-leg bicycle race. It's it's just this in, intense ride across the United States as fast as you can go. People do it in something like, I think the maximum you can do it is in 12 days. The person who has done it the fastest was like seven days. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine riding your bike in seven days from coast to coast in the United States? And we're talking, you know, the, again, over 3,000 miles in that, this, in that time. Um that was back in 2014. There's the wow. Marathon de Sable, which is happening, or Sabel, I, I don't know, Sable, in Morocco. And uh, that's the one that uh, you have to be entirely self-sufficient. It's an ultra-marathon. And the first race was held in 1986, and it's essentially a race across hot sands. I mean, it, intensely hot sands. You're racing across the desert. Yeah. And that, that's that. Um, you know, these are... Uh, Really, really dangerous. There's Ramsey's Round in Scotland. There's the Iditarod Trail, which we've been talking about all day. We can you can find out the details on that. There's something called the Jungle Marathon that happens in Brazil, which I think is really interesting. Oh, yeah. One one thing that okay, this is the last thing I'll mention about this endurance thing, but um, maybe for now. Um, <laughs> they, the one point that they pointed out in this National Geographic article that I was reading, it says the winner of the 2015 race is um, named Thomas Wittick of Germany was stung by a stingray before the race even started. And then he went on to win in 40 hours and 10 minutes. Um, this is a race that is run at, at 40 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that temperature is, but it's hot. It's the jungle. Um, 99% humidity. It's a 158-mile course that goes through, um, and of course, uh, you know, swamps and rivers and, and steep descents, trails, beaches, climbs. There's uh, It's just crazy. Like 25% of the people drop out ever before reaching the end just because of exhaustion. Did you um, say did you say 40 degrees Celsius? 40 degrees Celsius. That's yeah. 104 degrees so Fahrenheit. They're running a, a, a what essentially is an ultra marathon, I guess, in uh 100 it's 158 miles through the jungle in Jeez. Brazil with uh you know they say anacondas, mm-hmm. they've got piranhas in the rivers, or jaguars in the trees. Different That's kind just, of miserable. Yeah, exactly. I mean the winner that year in 2015 got stung by a stingray before the race and still won. I mean <laughs> that's that's nuts. So, uh, yeah, these, these tests of endurance, like, they're not for the faint of heart. And uh, the Iditarod is something that it just, when you, when you ponder what it takes in your head to, to mm. you know, take off from that start line and know that your destination is a thousand miles away through that territory, uh, it's, it's pretty shocking. Most people who perform well in the Iditarod are from northern states in the United States or ar- Arctic states <laughs> Go figure. over in Europe. Yeah, so, I mean, you yeah. have to kind of be acclimated Scandinavian. for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are we going to have, yeah. like, a, a like a cool runnings kind of moment, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 A Jamaican team is going to show up there in Alaska and, uh, and well, maybe not win, but yeah, but have fun doing I think it. anybody they have a from car stuff state. relay team go up there and do it? Yeah. Oh, do they have it. relay teams in the Iditarod? Uh, no. No, no, no. no, single, no. You this have to be a single. A single. Yeah. It has to be a single musher, and the team uh, is already signed up ahead of time. And the team. Oh, that's another thing. The dogs are all chipped, and of course, there's careful veterinary care along the way. You know, beforehand, there's all the vaccinations. There's everything that they need to have uh, for them medically is done ahead of time and during the race, and then after as well. The aftercare. I'm sure when they um, make their stops, they. Monitor yeah. the dogs the, during the, those stops. The chipping is important because that shows that you're not swapping out mm-hmm. dogs that mm-hmm. you know weren't there at the beginning. You know exactly who's who when they get <laughs> to. Because yeah, it's tough to say. Like, well, of course that's uh, that's 
my dog Milky Way there. You know that's you know? happened before, and that's why. <laughs> or whatever. They, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's another funny. Look at the list of names of the dogs on, on the teams. They're all pretty funny. But but imagine you've got to name, you know, 12 dogs a couple times a year. You know, you yeah. litter, litters of dogs that you then select your best team from, you know, uh-huh. the training camps. And so when I was there, they were naming dogs, like, by groupings. Like, they'd name them... Uh, like fashion names or, you know, like it'd be like Nike and Adidas and, you know, like that's yeah. the names. Like they kind of run out of names. They can't name them like here's, uh, you know, Ben, Scott, and Kurt. It's, yeah. uh, it's They do, but um, you'll run out. So they were naming them like candy bar names, uh-huh. you know, and, and they, I don't know, they come down to like star names or whatever, you know, it's it's like grouping. So it's easier to remember them all. Mm-hmm. Um, but imagine, yeah, you have to name like 36 dogs a year. That's hard. I used to, I used to <laughs> volunteer at this animal shelter and the one thing that irked me about it, and it was a great place, um, support your local animal shelter. The one thing that irked me about it was that someone had this prestigious job where they would name animals. And they were just terrible at it. And, I, you know, it's a person who had been working there for years. So I was trying to be fair. And I was thinking, you know, maybe at some point this person just ran out of names. It's like, I don't think this cat's name should be Umbrella, but look, I just volunteer here. You know what I mean? Uh, I think that's going to come back to haunt the cat. Uh, whatever. But cats don't care what their names are. Uh, they were doing the uh, Kaiser Sose thing. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah Kobayashi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a new podcast about queer history coming May 15th. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught— a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. 
the joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the dogs a little bit more, and then let's talk about the actual sled. Sound good? Yeah, of course. All right. So there are several types of dog breed that are used. Purebreds are common in the most northern reaches of the hemisphere, you know, Samoyed, Siberian Huskies, and so on, and Alaskan Malamutes would be another one. But most racing sled dogs are a mixed breed called Alaskan Huskies. Hmm. They're about yeah. 10, the breed's like 10,000 years old or so, according to um, Iditarod sources. It's not an officially recognized breed, but they're known for a couple of things. They're known for having very tough feet. They're also known for having a good weatherproof coat. And they're known for just loving pulling sleds. Yeah, as I've seen, I've witnessed mm-hmm. it. And it's weird because, you know, for a lot of people who criticize the practice of dog sledding, you know, like PETA and folks of that nature, and even people who are unfamiliar with working breeds of dogs, it may seem incredibly cruel, but it is also a natural inclination. It's kind of like, have you guys ever seen herding competitions with working breed dogs? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's really weird because their natural inclination seems like such a specific behavior. Any living creature's natural inclination to be finding a herd of sheep or something and then just like not attacking them, just walk, making them go weird yeah. places. That's <laughs> to me, that's weirdly specific. That's also something that these sorts of breeds seem acclimated to doing. Have you ever been around a dog that is a herding dog? That is not anywhere, like anywhere near a farm. Yes. That it was born a herding dog, but born like maybe in the city somewhere. Yeah, right? yeah, and, yeah. and you, uh, you know, you, you take it out to the park or whatever, and that dog will show herding characteristics. It'll or herding, try to herd, herding yeah. traits. Like try to try, herd kids. Yes, it yeah. will. They really will. I mean, it's I've seen it with my uh, my brother in law's dogs, and uh, and they do this, and it, they have never ever herded sheep as far as I know or cattle or you know whatever they herd they just want people to move together they do they want it's like they want order and they're going to make it happen you know that's what and it's just little dogs and it's like what are, you, what are you doing you're trying to force me to go the way that you want me to go but they do yeah it, it's it's just it's completely instinctual in these dogs and they do get excited about it like you said it's not it's not what people think think. I mean, I I guess I had my own preconceived ideas that, you know, this is a little bit mean to make these, like, these dogs aren't going to pull seven people on these sleds or even one right, person right, for right. a thousand miles on the sled. They're not going to like that. But when you see the excitement and the and and the energy that they have, they're just jumping all over each other to, to pull that sled. They want to go. They want to run. Mm-hmm. And they really do. And if you don't buy my version of this, Go online to any of these training camp sites where people have gone and had the same experience and read the comments. They'll say how excited and, and just 
pumped up these dogs are about running and the, and how much they love doing what they do. They really enjoy it. And it's it's such a foreign idea to us because we think, oh, that's mean making them pull people around and, you sure. know, this, these toys. It's not a toy. <laughs> to them, it's it's something that's bred into them and they, they love it. Well, this is a race, but we have to remember this race only exists because dog sledding was the primary means of transportation for a lot of people. So if people object to the race, that's totally within the right to do so. But even abolishing this particular race would not abolish the practice of dog sledding because for some people, even today, it's a better means of transportation. Yeah. Right? And with these dogs also, depending on what side you see about this, it's no secret that the endurance test, which is punishing to human beings, to the mushers, is also punishing to the canines. So, yes, over the years, uh, I, I think as recently as a few years back, uh, five dogs had died in yeah. the course of this. And those kind of deaths are, you know, some of those things that can't be predicted very well. Diet, as you mentioned, is huge. These mushers are dedicating a lot of time to taking care of their dogs, uh, so they even, even that high energy density food they get, they supplement it with, they add water, meat, fat, vitamins, even digestive enzymes to, I guess, take the inner work of digesting, yeah. uh, smooth it out a little bit. It's less work that their body has to do and they could focus more energy on running, really. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when I, the more I read about these dog teams, the more I was, you guys know, I love comic books and comic book movies. Uh, my girlfriend says it's because I have terrible taste, but whatever, uh, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Uh, I, as I was reading about the um, composition, the position, and the roles of the different dogs, I felt more and more like I was watching one of those films where there's a heist crew getting together in the movies, and then it's like, oh, it's you know, uh, <laughs> that's uh, slippery Jimmy, he's the safe cracker and scumbag Pete, he drives the getaway. <laughs> they got their own specialty. Yeah. They all have their specialties. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and the dogs are like this too. Uh, there are the lead dogs. Cause you'll notice when you see the, the dogs do have certain roles. The lead dogs understand these different commands that the mushers make and they respond and I think um, we had talked a little bit about some of those commands off air. Uh, you mean like G and haw? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Haw means uh, left turn and G, is that how it said? You know, I got to be honest, man, if I'm on the sled and we have to take that right turn, I'm just going to start yelling. Well, we'll just, just ask gonna the yell, dogs. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the lead dogs the, will be like, ask this, the dog, yeah. this Scott guy's an amateur. <laughs> uh, I thought they just like cracked the whip and yell mush. Right, right. <laughs> that's what I see in every cartoon. And I mean, that's, that's you know, well, I've seen it on many documentaries, I guess. There's this one documentary, yeah. uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and there's, yeah. A, uh, there's a prospector who has a, a team. Hmm. And uh, Cornelius, I believe, is his name. There's that you don't up. remember that? That doc that they did? It was like a, like, like a mid-1970s. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a documentary. Yeah. yeah. And he would flip his, you know, pickaxe in the air and then pick it up and like he'd kind of lick the end of it and decide if there was gold or silver there. Yeah, remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a good guy. Those, uh, those claymation, those, those claymation features from, you know, the 50s through the 70s, some of them are pretty intense. Even watching them again as a kid, mm -hmm. I thought, you know, my parents were letting me watch this when oh, I was like three. I love it. You, you've gone soft, Ben. 
I've gone soft. Yeah. <laughs> I, I need to take an Iditarod trip. Yeah, toughen to, up. To, toughen up. Yeah, get back to 100%. You know, it's weird because some of these uh, dogs also are considered not the lead dog. And I didn't think about this. For some reason, I always pictured the dogs being like raised together and trained together. But some of them are at different levels of experience and familiarity. So dogs that don't understand the directions, they're just like, who is this Kurt Garen guy yelling G at me? Uh, (laughs) Those dogs, you would think, are put toward the back, right? But not really. Some dogs have not learned these commands, but they're still used as the lead dog because they're especially good at discerning trails, Hmm. even when it's blown over with snow. Because the good folks at the Iditarod are, are pretty transparent. They say, you know, we will go and break the trail beforehand, but due to weather, we can't guarantee basically that you're going to be able to see the trail itself sure. or try to put up markers, but it's on you. So there are dogs that specialize just in finding that trail. And directly behind the lead dogs are the point or swing dogs. They're essentially backup leaders. Second in command. Like if the lead dog is Captain Picard in Star Trek, then these are the Lieutenant Rikers. Does that work? Uh, you've lost me. I've lost you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was attempting a Star Trek. Reference. Oh man, I'm 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 out with Star Trek. I'm uh, I'm not a Star Trek fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never have been. I never claimed to be. I think on the show we've talked about that. Maybe or maybe it was with Jonathan over on Tech Stuff. Yeah, it sounds like more of a conversation he and I would have. But um, are you a big Star Trek fan? I mean, I I like the idea, but I'm not gonna go. Uh, yeah, I guess so. As a bunch of fan hey. of other stuff. What about you, Kurt? Mm-mm. I never got into. I just thought of something. Trek. You know, What's we're that? talking uh, space, the final frontier, right? Yeah, yeah. Alaska, the last uh, frontier, right? Yeah, isn't it the yeah. last frontier? Didn't yeah. they refer to it as the last frontier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, there you go. That's the tie-in. There you go. There we go. We, we made sorted it all up. We made it. So, <laughs> so circle, sort of. So right. So we're on the sled, right? Right in front of the sled. The dogs uh, directly in front of it are called the wheel dogs. Traditionally, these were the dogs that were on the larger side. The average weight of a dog, um, or most of them, is going to be between 45 and 50 pounds. Um, The wheel dogs are going to be on the bigger end because they help provide that initial power. They're bigger dogs? Yeah. Would you say they're a little husky? Oh, man. <laughs> I, I have no regrets. That was excellent. That was just, the best one. Just came to me. I don't know. I was reading the tag on my jeans. Husky. <laughs> it's weird because off off mic, uh, Scott, Scott made Kurt and I be quiet for a second, and we, we just sat here awkwardly in silence for eight minutes that hopefully got cut when Scott ran and got his post-it note with that joke on it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just all relied on you saying bigger dogs. That's all. Yeah. Talking about the fat dogs. I should have got there earlier. But yeah, yeah. so we've got the dogs. <laughs> what about the, uh, just real quick, what do we know about the, the, the sleds? The sleds are relatively fascinating. Your modern lightweight racing sled generally weighs about 20 to 30 pounds. That's 9 to 13.5 kilograms. 
And um, most sleds are made of ash lashed together with leather or nylon. Though there's a trend to start to make the sleds out of more composite materials, which I'm surprised that that hasn't taken effect sooner. I bet it's I bet it's much more common in competitive sledding, mm-hmm. competitive events. You know yeah. what I mean? Seems yeah. like I mean that's a traditional sled that we're talking about, right? The ash right. wood that's lashed together. I think it's the one we can all picture too. Mm-hmm. Is the you know the typical wooden sled? And geez, I mean to be honest, a twenty to thirty pound sled that's not bad. These are big. These are big items. They're, yeah. they're not small. Uh, mm-hmm. They have to carry all the gear that, you know, we've talked about. And, and there's a couple of different types, too. There's the toboggan style. I think most people can picture a toboggan with kind of the open design, I suppose. Yeah, that's yeah. way to say it. And then there's the other type that's the basket style. And that's one that has more of a, a nose cone look to it, uh, like a nose cone of a plane or something. I see. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that one, to me, that makes the most sense for this type of race because I've, I've read that, you know, in uh, really, really bad weather, um, or maybe not even in just in just normal weather there in Alaska, uh, the musher can then take their sleeping bag and, and tuck that inside the basket and sleep in there and use it as a tent almost. Mm. So that's where they sleep. The dogs, of course, have their own you know natural protection against weather yeah. and the elements <laughs> like that. But um, and they do carry straw and things like that for them to bed down on at night uh, mm-hmm. for the dogs. But um, yeah, a couple of different designs are possible, and you know we've we've seen other designs of sleds too. I mean, there's the real real simple ones that look like. Um, you know the old, old-style stadium chairs that look like um, uh, look like folding chairs almost. They're wooden, mm-hmm. very, very simple design, very, uh, very small. They look like matchsticks almost. Mm-hmm. You know that they built this chair out of. There's that kind. I, I think I can't remember the name of it now, but it's a very small sled, very short. It's just two skis and a uh, seat in front, basically. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the musher will stand behind the chair with their hands on top of it, and that's where they guide it from. But uh, lots of different types of these dog sleds are possible, but these racers have to have some common safety features too, right? Yeah. yeah. So one that I saw at this uh, this camp was uh, the emergency brake, which surprised me, right? Because the dogs, the dogs will take off on their own and pull the sled to the next location. They've got some kind of, uh, well, you know, I said they love to, to, to run. Yeah, they'll take off without a musher and go the full distance. They'll go. They'll go to the next town unless they're caught <laughs> without the musher, and that's happened before. Where you know they have to send out a, a team, you know, on snowmobiles or yeah. snow machines to go out and, and rescue the sled, I guess, from the dog team as running away. Right, and this foot brake that they have, think of it like a series of claws. Yeah, foot activated claws. They also have a pronged metal claw, which is called a snow hook that can temporarily keep the team stationary. That's the emergency brake, the, yeah. cl- the, the hook. And the hook looks like um, something you'd catch a whale on or something. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's a, this massive dual claw thing that when the dogs pull, they actually pull it deeper into the gr- into the yeah. snow or the ground or whatever it's yeah. in. Um, it, it's very effective, but uh, it looks like this massive, massive hook thing that has to hold back the entire team of dogs. The one that you're talking about is the, it's called a drag mat, and I thought this was very clever of them. It's it, If you can picture a piece of conveyor belt that is flipped upside down with like, you know, the, the ridges for the conveyor belt, the rubber conveyor belt maybe, mm-hmm. yeah. it's, you know, two feet wide, whatever it happens to be, the span of the, the skis hangs down in between the driver's feet as they're riding. They can, you know, raise it and lower it if they want to. But all they have to do is then kind of step on the mat to kind of feather the uh, the speed because you actually, the dogs are going so fast, you have to slow them down and not right. necessarily stop them every time. Because you could hurt them if you st- stop abruptly or yeah, attempt to. Or if they're trying to take a, a mountain pass and the dogs are pulling too fast and, you know, think they're going to yeah. go over the edge. Or you're, I mean, down going downhill too, I'd imagine the sled picks up quite a bit of speed. Oh, you yeah, want to yeah, yeah. run up on, you know, you want to keep the tension right. Oh, very yeah. good point. Yeah, and they said that, you know, you can even drive, um, you know, nuts and bolts 
through that mat to add kind of some some biting strength mm. to it. Mm. Uh, there are other types of brakes that, that can be used, but they are not necessarily favored on these types of sleds because a lot of the, the racers will race in the same path as the person in front of them. Right. You know, it's like a worn path, and if you use a different type of brake that operates where the rails are, where the skis are, it will leave deep ruts then that the next rider will have to have to deal with, you know, where um, the sled will bottom out or it will, you know, lurch to one side or the other depending on where the brake was. So these drag mats seem to be the key in the whole thing. Pretty smart. Smart design. Pretty smart. And there's another thing uh, when we talk about design. It's not just the design of the sled itself. We should also talk about the design of the race, which, uh, yes, I do mean to refer to the rule book that you mentioned, Scott. Yeah. She read the whole thing. <laughs> I, uh, I, I looked at it. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> That's all right. I read some parts more closely than others. Uh, how about you, Kurt? Did you read? Did you read any of the rules at all? I haven't read the rules. Okay, so I I don't know why I found this interesting. I I, I thought I was going to be bored to death with the whole thing, right? Because it's 15 pages of rules about a dog sled race, and I'm not a dog sled racer. I'm not a musher. Um, I don't have much to do with it other than we were doing this podcast. You're also I started, not a rules guy, You're I, Scott. I, no rules, <laughs> Benjamin. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Me and uh, Smokey Eunuch. Uh, so anyways, I, I, um, I, I kind of looked at, the, I started to look at the rules and I, and I got more and more into these rules because there's some really obscure, odd rules in here. Some and very strict ones too. Now, uh, they're very strict. And of course they're all serious. They're all, and, and some of these rules are just so out there compared to different races and things that we're more accustomed to around here, you know, and yeah. in other races and other parts of our life. But just real briefly, I mean, the rules are 15 pages long, and you can search this online if you want to look at them for yourself. They're amusing and interesting and, you know, informative and all that. It's worth, you know, 10 minutes of time just to scan them, if nothing else. Uh, just search for I Did a Ride Rules 2020, and it'll come up with the full final list. Rules, uh, just to give you an example, like a lot of them are about the mushers themselves, a lot of them are about the equipment, the sleds themselves. There's a whole group of, of rules just about the treatment of dogs, and those are like rules number 38 through 48, and they're 37 through 48, and they're all kind of clustered that way, right? And I mean, these include things like, you know, the dog care and the, and the food shipping and all that and the amounts and, you know, the requirements for shots and all that stuff. Uh, very important rules about the dogs, of course, and the, and the mushers and, you know, what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do even littering and things like that on the trail. Um, there were some really fascinating ones, and I, I, and I, I chuckle about a couple of these, but you really shouldn't. I mean, some of them are, are, again, dead serious, and there's reasons behind this. But one of the funny ones that I came across initially uh, was rule number 34. So if you look at rule number 34, it's about the killing of edible game in that you, uh, you're, it's necessary in order to protect your life or your equipment or your team or, you know, whatever, whatever that happens to be, your, your life or your property, I guess, in defense of that. And it has happened on the trail before. The fact is that when this race is run in March of every year, there's a lot of snow up there. And, of course, there's a lot of snow. And that will often force the moose out onto the trails, which are less wooded. And it's easier for them to get around, to forage and to, you know, uh, just, just to get to... Be up point A to point B for the moose. However, you come around a corner and there's a, a mad moose in front of you. They start charging your dog team, which they do. They get angry. There have been times in the past. In fact, I think the first woman who run who uh, no, I'm sorry, the second woman woman to win the race in 19 I want to say 85 mm -hmm. missed it only missed the win in the previous year only because a pregnant moose was around one of the corners as she came around, and uh, it charged her team, killed two of her dogs, the, mm -hmm. the moose did, injured another one, 
And another rider eventually uh, came upon them. This is like 20 minutes later, came upon them and shot and killed the moose. Then there's a rule in the, in here, this rule number 34, about what you have to do once you kill the moose. This is interesting. Let's walk through this. Rule 34, not the famous internet rule 34, which we won't mention because this is a family show. Uh, rule 34 for the Iditarod is, uh, is the following, <laughs> killing game animals. In the event that an edible big game animal, i.e. moose, caribou, buffalo, is killed in defense of life or property, the musher must gut the animal and report the incident to a race official at the next checkpoint. Following teams must help gut the animal when possible. No teams may pass until the animal has been gutted and the musher killing the animal has proceeded. Any other animal killed in defense of life or property must be reported to a race official but need not be gutted. Interesting, huh? Mm-hmm. Now, what other race have you heard where that is one of the rules? Not NASCAR, that's right, for my, sure. <laughs> you know what? It's probably going to be in there in, in 2020. <laughs> uh, someone will bend that rule this year, right? Yeah. So, no, th- really, th- that's an odd rule, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, so I read that, and I and I thought, well, there's got to be more in there. There's got to be other things like that. But the reason yeah. that they do that, and if anybody out there is confused, it's because it's edible meat. And so that, you know, the, the nearest town or the nearest uh, community will be able to come out, you know, via radio, know where it is in, on the course, come out pick up that, uh, you know, that now gutted, oh, cool. ready, okay. ready for butchering animal yeah. and be able to provide to the community. Uh, they'll give oh. it to those who, those in need, you know, those who need it. And that's whether really that's awesome. sharing it among, you know, the, the townsfolk or, you know, and they know of a family that needs meat for the season or whatever, that's what the reason is behind that. So, you know, if it's another type of animal that, you know, is not a game animal, not, th- not one that people eat, right. and you still have to do that, the, the gutting rule... I guess, doesn't apply to that animal. It just, you know, the caribou, the moose, and uh, what was the other one, elk or whatever yeah. it was. But uh, I thought that was an interesting rule, and there's there's several others that are similar interesting items, maybe not quite as obscure as, the, as that one yeah, might be. but um, quite as specific. Yeah, maybe. rule number 16 is a mandatory items list that the mushers must carry. Oh, uh, yeah, I saw that. And and that's important. I mean, everybody has common sense, you know, about what they need to wear, you know, the, the number of layers, the type of jacket or gloves or whatever. But this one has mandatory items that you have to carry in order to uh, to be cleared for um, you know, for, for competition. Some of it's basic and some of it's pretty impressive. So, of course, a sleeping bag, duh. Yeah, but with a minimum weight, right? Right, minimum, must weigh five pounds mm-hmm. minimum. And an axe, uh, snowshoes, specific dimensions for those. Yep. Any promotional material provided by the race organization, eight booties for each dog in the sled or in use. So that's total. So uh, they need at least four that they're wearing at all times and a backup. So you got 12 dogs. You need eight booties for each dog. Mm. Uh, You can do the math, but that's a a lot of booties to carry around initially. And then that number declines, of course, as you go through them and drop off dogs and things like that. And then this was interesting. This impressed me. A veterinarian notebook. Because when you get to the veterinarian checkpoint, you have to have... It's essentially, you know, like if you're a responsible car owner, you keep a repair log yeah. and you have your mileage and you have the, you know, like your yearlies and all that stuff, your mm-hmm. 30K or whatever. Uh, they kind of have that for the dogs, right? Mm-hmm. Which I thought was responsible. And then they have to have dog coats. Uh, they, they've got They've got several specific things here. I'll tell you. One thing that I was curious about that I didn't find out until I went to the rule book was, uh, well, you know, I'm a cheapskate. 
ever since we did this show. I'm yeah. still, I'm still really a cheapskate. Like it's, <laughs> it's impairing my relationships. But I looked into, uh, I looked into how much it would cost to get going. Right. Yeah. Not counting equipment. Not counting dogs. Dogs are the biggest expense. Yeah. Equipment is the second. Right. The entry fee alone is four grand. It's pretty expensive. It's just, it's not a, I, I'm saying this because we need to establish this is not a thing where you can just like fly up a few weeks before March and say, you know, hey, how much is this sled going to run me? Yeah. A uh, Target or something. <laughs> uh, you have to, you have to, that's four grand if you submit before December 2nd, 2019. After that, you have to pay an extra non-refundable fee. So it's eight grand. $8,000 just, just to enter you the race. You have to pay an extra four grand, yeah, if you go late. Yeah. And, it's a late uh, fee. Yeah, it's wow. a late fee. Yeah, a steep. That is a steep late <laughs> fee. And really, when you think about how much it takes to, I mean, a lot of these, you know, runners, I, I, Wade, uh, Wade Mars, the guy that I was talking about, he runs yeah. his own kennel now. Uh, mm -hmm. So he has, you know, the, the dog's on his property that he is kind of grooming for this whole thing. And, you know, of course, there's going to be, you know, speaking engagements that they can do and make a little money here and there. Last I heard, the, the payouts weren't terribly great compared to what you invest in order to run in this race because the sleds are expensive. Right. The equipment is expensive. We all know, I mean, try go try to buy a really nice jacket. <laughs> just as an, a simple example. Just really one nice jacket. jacket. Just one jacket. Yeah, that's an expensive item, right? So you're going to buy yeah. that. you got to buy, you know, the all of the gear that is Arctic gear, you know, stuff that's, I mean, we're talking really, really heavy-duty camping uh, gear for for you know the the coldest temperatures you ever you've ever felt in your life. Yeah, and keep the dogs healthy. Keep the keep the equipment in operation. Keep all you know. Make sure that you have all these things shipped. You run a team of people, you know, that are at different checkpoints to help you along the way and to pick up dogs and to transport dogs. And it's just it, the logistics of this race are uh, mind boggling. You know, when you think about what it takes to put it together, it's not something that, like Ben said, you can't go there a couple weeks ahead of time and expect to enter the race. This is something that you get ready for years in advance plan for, train for, you have to qualify for, right. um, you have to get an, another musher that is already, you know, a veteran musher to write a note of recommendation for you as somebody that they trust if you're a rookie. Um, you know, that's part of the rules too. That you have to, yeah, you have to take a drug test 30 days before your dogs have to take a drug test during the during the, the competition as well at, at points when they decide, when they determine. Yeah. So no random. brand, you it's know, like random, yeah, like any athlete. Yes, yeah, so yeah. you're not going to have a, you're not going to have a chance, you know, to, to warm up with some brandy along the course there if you want to. They're I mean, very do, strict about maybe it. Maybe you can have a tiny little bit of brandy, but that's about it. And and they check the dogs as well, and it's completely random. They may say the first grouping of fifteen mushers that enter this town, we're going to test all of them, you know, with a spit test, a urine test, a blood sure. test, a hair test, whatever it is. Uh, we're going to test the dogs, or they may just randomly select one person. They may, it's it's really as they see fit, I guess, yeah. you know, when they do it. Okay, so that's where, there's, oh man, that's another thing, I, you know, the, the drugging of dogs uh, for added performance. That's, that's mm -hmm. another rule, uh, which is rule number, happens to be number 39, I believe. Right, uh, yeah. The the substances that you had talked about before, you know, no, no diuretics, no uh, muscle relaxers for the dogs. Nothing they, that can uh, suppress signs of illness or injury. They will, however, I thought this was interesting, let them use steroids on their paws. Uh, a certain type of steroids that are approved through the through the uh, the medical office there ahead of time, the mm -hmm. veterinary office, uh, for injured paws so that they heal quickly, because you know they do 
that's they're taking a, a ton of abuse on that on that course. You know, the ice and snow and rocks yeah. and all that. You know, the debris that's there. Um, uh, and the dogs are evaluated pretty thoroughly by a veterinarian. Yeah. Before entering the race, there's one other drug they're allowed to use uh, for an estrus suppressant. Hmm. Uh, it's called Ovaban. Is the uh, uh, it's not super creative. Well, it gets kind of specific, right? Yeah. 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 I believe that drug is specifically meant to keep uh, the dogs out of heat. Oh. <laughs> so okay. they could stay focused on the race, <laughs> on the mission. Stay focused, dogs. Stay focused. So uh, it's strange because <laughs> like many like many other uh, competitive sports or other races, uh, they did have in the Iditarod a bit of a doping scandal in recent years oh. uh, because there were some dogs that tested positive. Well, that's why they're pretty specific about it, right? Yeah. I mean, and what's allowed. And if you look at the list, it does have the... Uh, the, the feeling to me that, like, every year that list probably grows a little bit. Like, someone tries something new, you know what I mean? Like, right. they detect something that is somehow an enhancement to that dog's energy level or the, the oxygen, um, you know, carrying capability of the blood level in that dog, you know, that type of thing. It's just like you said. It's like NASCAR, yeah. the way that NASCAR changes every time. Also, one thing I love about really specific rules like this, anywhere you go, uh, whether it's a department store or whether you're putting together furniture and looking at the instructions there, the weirdly specific stuff always tells a story between the lines. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> like even when you yeah. see we- those bizarre laws that are still on the books in different U.S. states, yeah, it's like imagine you're putting together a couch and it's like, all right, step four, attach the joist from point A to the, uh, you know, to the this part of point B and then like the next step is like under no circumstances attempt to entirely eat joists and digest them uh, if uh, if you do so contact a medical professional immediately uh, please note that the joist should no longer be considered usable uh, please see appendix A for full details and you're like who ate part of this couch <laughs> you, know, you know what the equivalent of this is here in the office like if, uh, if suddenly an email comes out about something that you've just done you know, like oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you burn you burn something in the toaster. It's like you know, and an hour later, the email comes out to everyone. You know, uh, for Hello, all future all. users yeah. of the of the toaster. You know, that type of thing. You know, so um, you know exactly. There's there's one person that has uh, screwed something up and caused that rule to be enacted. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true she pivots fashion. We're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink that's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. 
For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a new podcast about queer history coming May 15th. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Unfortunately, if you go down a couple of rules farther, down to 42, yeah. there's a rule about expired dogs, as we talked about before, and, and the treatment of those and what has to happen. And just so everybody is aware of this, when a dog does expire on the trail, which does happen, um, and for, for whatever reason, they determine the reason. They do a, a quick, um, I don't think they call it a, um, an autopsy, it's called like a necropsy, I think, or something like that. Right. Uh, they, they run that, they have you know veterinarians check it out, they do the blood samples and everything. The musher is held... In the next checkpoint, uh, you know, after the dog is delivered, you know, unfortunately deceased. To figure out what happened. To figure out exactly what happened to find it, to determine if there is any abuse that was there or drug overdose or, you know, whatever happened to that dog. They find out the cause of death and either, um, you know, either pull that musher from the competition if there is something suspect in there or they allow the musher to continue if it's deemed as, uh, you know, a natural death. If something an unpreventable um, hazard, an act they, of God, basically. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a hazard of the race, and, I mean, yeah. it, it, it does happen. It, it does happen, you know, someone will point to um, a human marathon and say that if we had deaths in this human marathon at the rate we have, in the Iditarod would have a big problem, right? If, if people were dropping in the Boston Marathon or the New York Marathon like they do in the Iditarod, and it's not like dogs are dying every year by any means. It's just it happens occasionally, and it seemed like for a couple of years there was a, a, like a grouping where it happened often. Um, but anyways, that's something you can investigate on your own. But um, there is a rule about expired dogs and about you know what has to happen there, unfortunately. It has to be there. It has to be there, but also it's uh, it's prefaced with the Iditarod holds firmly that no dog should suffer harm or death in connection to the race. And it's good that they have a process in place to make sure that there's not some unscrupulous musher out there. Absolutely. But you know what? You talk to uh, you know people that do this, and they, lo- they love their dogs. I mean, they are... 
They're yeah. all fa- they're part of their family. I mean, it's John the, Wick rules, man. It, Don't it, mess with people's dogs. <laughs> no, they uh, they really do. They they love these animals. So, um, anyways, that's we'll we'll move on past that. There's another couple that I want to mention here that yeah. I think were interesting. There are rules about passing, which I thought were interesting. That's rule number twenty six. Passing. There's some interesting right of way type situations that happen where you know if someone is uh, approaching you from behind, you need to let them pass, and there's a certain amount of time you have to wait before you retake the trail and, you know, that type of thing. So there's passing rules if you wonder how that works. So they're not getting next to each other and, you know, like trying to knock each other out of the way like yeah. uh, Mad Max style or something. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, you know, that there's not somebody out there that's doing that, but you think they would be reported in the next, the, you know, the next checkpoint, of course. Yeah, the, um, the it, way it works is uh, if someone's coming up behind you, they can say, get out of the way, and you have to. You have to stop your team, and you have to hold the dogs for 60 seconds mm-hmm. or until the other team is passed, whichever happens first. This, that's interesting, right? But the team that gets passed can't repeat that action until at least 15 minutes have expired. So you got to stay behind the team that passed you for a minimum of 15 minutes. And then... Get out of the way. Yeah, you <laughs> get out of the way. Yeah. Well, you got that 60-second break, so you got all that energy, right? You can, you right, can, you can right. blast past them, right? I wonder if dog, well, dog sleds don't have rearview mirrors. So I wonder if it's sort of a surprise when someone yells from behind you. I don't know why get that, out of the way. that sounded so profound. That sounds like what you were talking about with the lead dog thing earlier. <laughs> that sounds like something I would see on a bumper sticker. It's like dog, dog sleds don't have rearview mirrors. <laughs> I don't it's know not why. really a life lesson. It's just uh, it's just a fact. But it sounds like it's about something <laughs> it else. It could be. You know, I'm going to work on that. There's got to be something Let's that ties into that. Let's workshop that, yeah. Uh, okay, and the last one that I wanted to mention, the last rule, um, and, and of many, many rules in this book, um, are, is number 23. There's something called the Good Samaritan Rule. And the Good Samaritan Rule is pretty interesting to me. Ben, I don't have it in front of me right now due to a computer failure. Tell I'll read this one, yeah. Rule so 23. Rule number 23, the Good Samaritan Rule states that a musher will not be penalized for aiding another musher in an emergency. Incidents must be explained to race officials at the next checkpoint. I love this rule. You know, yeah. this, this goes back to you and I talking about how we would occasionally, and then I guess I've, we've slipped out of this, but would help someone, somebody, you know, with a flat oh, tire. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah A roadside yeah, yeah. assistance, yeah, you know, yeah. like of, of another citizen, how that's kind of gone away now. We don't necessarily do that anymore. Here and there, maybe yes, you know, in, in certain circumstances. But the Good Samaritan rule ensures that, you know, someone's stuck out there in the wilderness with a broken, uh, you know, dog sled ski or, sure. you know, they're having a trouble of some kind or, you know, a, a moose situation. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Whatever moose. it is, the Good Samaritan <laughs> rule comes into play that you have to aid the other, the fellow contestants, the fellow uh, mushers. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it's a great rule to have. I mean, that, you know, you can't just ignore them and leave them out there because in this case, you know, you ignore them, there's a good chance they might die out there. The whole know, team overnight. could die. Yeah, the yeah. whole team. I mean, it really could happen. There have been no human deaths that I know of to date from 1973 until present. A few dog deaths here and there, right. uh, but no human deaths. And I think the Good Samaritan rule probably has a lot to do with that. Oh, that, sure. You know, being, you know, just helping out your fellow man. I, it seems like that's just the right thing to do anyway. I think most people would do that regardless if there was rule number 23 if there wasn't. So I guess the accumulated total time, yeah. kind of the time clock stops when you stop to help someone. You won't be penalized. Yeah. yeah. So before yeah. this rule, I mean, I would imagine that maybe the drive to... <laughs> 
Yeah, and I to think it, it, with... it might come down to position, too. You know, the one coming to the aid uh, is not penalized a position yeah, of course. versus the other one. Because I think when they, you know, if they get back on the trail, maybe they determine how, you know, what the gap should be mm-hmm. and that type of thing. So yeah. um, without knowing the specifics of every situation, you know, um, it's tough to say. But I think that they're just generally, which is nice to say, they're generally fair about things, which is good. Well, yeah. There's an etiquette yeah. to this, to the race. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and a bit of, um, you know, it's... I mean, I, they're women. Women participate also, but it's kind of a gentleman's rule. Well, you know? there's not any um, there's chivalry to it, right? And yeah. there's there's not any. I would say most of the people racing, they're not there to become millionaires off of it. They're no. they're racing because they enjoy the journey and they enjoy the competition. And part of the competition is a, a really enjoyable competition, and, has fairness. Well, this is a generational thing, too, right? I mean, yeah. well, if you look down the list of winners from 1973 till present, you're going to find that a, a lot of these, uh, the, the winners of the Iditarod are either, you know, I think there's a father-son. There's uh, there's, yeah. brother, there's a lot of brothers and even sisters that, you know, have raced and won. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just, a, it's, a, it's, it's fascinating to look down the, the list of, repeat winners and see who's won, you know, three, four, five times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of interesting. You know, and then there's always going to be the first, you know, like the first yeah. father-son, you know, uh, years apart, obviously, or maybe the next year or whatever. But then, you know, the first person to win two in a row, the first person to win three in a row, um, you know, repeats, the first woman, the first uh, whatever, you know, there's it, always first of everything. This is one of those sports, you know, what's interesting to me about this this type of racing is it's one of those competitions that probably will never have autonomous vehicles involved. There probably will not be... <laughs> uh, um, Electric <laughs> An electric sled race. There probably there there are, but it won't be the Iditarod, and there probably won't be you know a, a computer at the other end of the sled that's yelling its hogs. You know, you know, before we finish this up, I want to point out that uh, what did we say that the um, the first race was won in? It was like it was like twenty days, wasn't 20 it? Twenty days. That's right. Tw- yes, twenty days and some odd hours. And we were gonna we were gonna tell our listeners. How that uh, how that time has been cut down and cut down and cut down and of course it's incremental, right? Twenty days, zero hours, forty nine minutes and forty one seconds. Okay, so twenty days is how long that first uh, first competitor was out there, and all the teams behind him. That was the, that was the fastest. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is out there a lot longer, right? Okay, so in twenty seventeen, I only have the numbers for number for twenty seventeen. Uh, actually, you know what? I shouldn't say I only have the numbers. I have the course record, which was broken in 2017. 2018 and 19 didn't produce didn't a record. record. Didn't break a record. But 2017, uh, the winner was a guy named Mike Seavey, and uh, that's the musher. And Mike Seavey, I think he's a repeat winner, too. He mm-hmm. wasn't, uh, this isn't his first first win. Get this, Ben. Yeah. And Kurt. Get this. Yeah. Eight days, three hours, 40 minutes, and 13 seconds. So they have cut down from twenty days down to eight days, and not even not even like eight and a half days. It's like just over mm-hmm. eight days. So that's unbelievable to me. I mean, how do you cut that much off of a winning time in order to uh, in order to break the record? I mean, they, that that is a shattered record right there. But I know that over the last uh, well, gosh, how many years is that now? It's forty plus years, right? Forty yeah. uh, six years now that they've run this thing. It's gone down slowly, you know, slowly. The course record is then, you know, 19 days, 18 days. You know, it jumps down like that. But to get from 20 to 8, 
That's pretty remarkable, really. Something's up. I mean, is it better dogs? Is it better sleds? Is it better mushers? Is it faster snow? Well, it was yeah. a, the weather had <laughs> to be good. It? it was a southern route because it was an odd number year, right? Yeah, yeah. So maybe the route has some sort of role. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. Lighter sled? I would yeah. go ahead I mean, and say over that. Over the years, in the big picture, it's probably just the stature of the event and the way that people approached it probably just got more and more competitive as... Yeah, as things now. Do. See, I buy that too. I think that you know, early on, um, you know, I think that it was like we're all going to do this, and it's going to be a good time. But no mm-hmm. one is like, you know, training in the off season in order to lose weight, in order to make their sled lighter, and no one mm-hmm. is you know looking at alternative materials for their sled, and they're not feeding their dogs you know like super high energy food and the right types of medical drugs that they can give their dogs right. that, you know, help them to grow bigger and stronger and, you know, that are still legal, and, you know, for the dog race or dog sled race. But it seems like, you know, people get more and more competitive about things. And I think money is probably a bit of a driver because there is a bigger purse now than yeah. there ever was. It, you know, it really wasn't a race about money to begin with. Right. Well, it's and, a lifestyle. It's an established sport. Yeah. So, I mean, people make their living doing this. Sure. These types of races. So. Yeah. I'm sure that plays into it. Uh, yeah, course. I just, I mean, I, I know that people start to take things more and more serious, but it's kind of like, um, I, I see this, uh, I guess a, a correlation of this is that, you know, we talked about how hard it is to, you, you can't just show up and, and do this. Mm-hmm. There used to be there were some types of auto racing that you could do the same thing for, right? You can right. just show up yeah. and race and, you know, you pay your entrance fee and you've got the same equipment as, you know, the semi-pros do that are already there. Everything seems to go this way, seems to get yeah. this way that, you know, then if you don't have, you know, now you're at the point in a lot of series where if you don't have $2 million to start and, and eight cars, you know, in the in the uh, the garage, you're not going to be able to do it. And it's, in a way, simpler for the, the dog sledders to compete, but it also takes more time and more preparation and more understanding of what it was all about and the history of in order to, to do this, I think. Mm-hmm. It feels like we could talk about this all day, really. I mean, how yeah. you know, like the, these different shades of gray, I guess, of, of why people do it and how they get better at it. And, and uh, I don't know. There's, it's because you can't ride moose. <laughs> Let's be honest. Dogs are great. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Would you want to see a moose race? I would want to see a moose race. I really would. I, want to I, I, would. Well. I would. I would. I they was... wear, would you wear a saddle? Uh, well, not you. I mean the moose. No, not me. No. Oh, no would, the, would the moose wear a saddle? Uh, that's the thing. Apparently, I zoned out for a little bit because I was thinking about this, and I, I just checked on it off mic, and apparently it's very difficult to ride moose. Mm. They don't care for they're, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, they're... they're they can be angry too, from what we've heard in the uh, in this. Did I tell you? Discussion. I, yeah, I went. Uh, one of the things I was doing when I was up in Alaska is I interviewed a uh, a moose, a lovely lady who, oh. uh, in her, she was she's retired. She's elderly now, but even just a few years ago, she actually got in a one-on-one fight with a moose that was attacking her husband. Well, she had a dog there too. I was trying to chase the moose off, oh, but no. she had to grab a shovel from a pickup truck and just start wailing on it. And eventually, I think, I think the thing is, the size difference was so big that eventually the moose just became inconvenienced and then decided <laughs> to leave. You know it's what just I mean? Bothered by her. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like, well, this is not what I signed up for. Yeah, this is, and we've all been there. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's how I am with laundry. I get it. I wonder what the moose is going after her husband for, though. Uh, I don't know, but a mad moose is a very dangerous thing because, you know, occasionally when they perceive humans as threats, their initial, like any wild animal, their initial 
idea if they think you're a threat is going to be to either is to flee. Yeah. But then the second option is to fight. So those are giant. You know they're that? huge. I was yeah. camping in Killarney, Canada, and uh, we were headed to go camping in Killarney, Canada. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it was probably around 1990, early 1990s, maybe 1990 even. And uh, we're headed up, and this is in like north of Michigan in, in Canada. And uh, it's pitch black. It's night. We've been traveling all night, and we're in this minivan. It was in Ford Aerostar, so back then. You know, oh, wow. Okay. Driving this minivan, so we're up kind of high, and we're on a gravel road. No lights anywhere. It's pitch black. My friend Mark slams on the brakes, and we skid a pretty significant distance. We were going too fast, but we skidded a long, long way on this gravel. And there we are, eye to eye with a baby moose. Oh wow! And it's big. I mean, it's yeah. like it's seven feet tall. You know, if if it, it felt like it was seven feet tall, it's probably six feet tall. Right. But um, it, it had you know the the nice big wide body. You know, like the big fat belly and barrel, everything. It's yeah. just what you would think, you know, like a yeah. baby, but it's clearly a baby, a young And they one. look kind of gawkish. I don't know. They yeah. look awkward. It's like the legs shouldn't hold them up. The body's yes. really big and their head's big and you know, all that. And it was a, it was an awkward looking animal, but it was very calm. And it just, it just kind of stared at us for a few seconds and we were all catching our breath, looking at it in the headlights Yeah, and just walked away. That's just, just strolled off to the side of the road, but we were lucky not to hit it because I think it would have done significant damage to the car. Oh, yeah. Last moose story. Uh, this is just something I've heard. Uh, so Alaskan residents write to us and let us know uh, if if you've run into this before. Uh, I heard uh, that people in in Alaskan towns around Halloween have a problem with jack-o'-lanterns because the moose love to eat pumpkins. So you'll carve a pumpkin and put it out, and then some moose will come by and just sort of like lazily uh, chaw on it, you know, and what are you going to do? <laughs> they like pumpkins. How far That's are you willing to go to protect that, that don't, pumpkin? Don't, push too, uh, don't put too much time into the carving of that pumpkin, yeah. I guess, is what you're saying, right? <laughs> yeah, because yeah. Uh, you know what they say, guys, dog sleds don't have rear view mirrors. <laughs> no, it's not working. It feels like it's supposed to mean you know something else. Maybe, maybe it'll uh, work. Maybe I don't it'll work. Know. We'll figure it out. But that's the Iditarod. Yeah, there's uh, there's a lot to it, isn't there? And there's probably a lot more than we're talking. about. Yeah, we just about scratched even. the surface, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, we just we just pawed the snow. Yeah. Uh, but I I am fascinated by it. You know, um, the three of us have been fans of the outdoors. Um, Temperature dependent, right, Scott? No, it's getting cold. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I, I for one, would love to would love to travel uh, back up to Alaska, maybe in March, to just at least see the launch because mm. they launch from mm. Anchorage. So. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. How about the finish? I mean, they have. Uh, we didn't talk about it, but there's it, listeners can check this on their own. But there's the burled arch that they cross underneath. Oh yeah. There's a whole history behind that, and that's a pretty fascinating story too. But uh, we didn't have time. Next time. <laughs> How's that for a tease, right? I mean, <laughs> we, we don't have time. We just don't have time. But look, in, look up the burled arch with the uh, the Iditarod, and there's a mm-hmm. story behind that and the original arch that was destroyed, and now they've got a new one, and it's really cool. And maybe we can see that someday. Who knows? I mean, Alaska's not like, it's not impossible to get to anymore, right? Pretty easy.
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, flights unless, daily. Unless something happened while we were in the studio. No, yeah. no, flights daily. You can take a cruise there. You could drive yeah. there. Mm-hmm. I guess. Well, Kurt, he's a bicycler. He could bike there. I'm sure. Yeah, right. He's, he he's could got bike a, there. He could. He's got endurance. Uh, so, so, <laughs> uh, we want to hear from you. Have are you someone who objects to the Iditarod because of maybe concerns about the animals? Are you someone who supports this competition? Are you someone who has participated? in the Iditarod or any sled race? If so, we would love to hear from you. You can find Car Stuff on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. We're Car Stuff, all one word, or some, you know, derivation thereof. You can also find every single episode that Scott, Kurt, and I have ever done on our website, carstuffshow.com. Even, whew, even the first ones. Yeah. Remember those first ones, Scott? Those were ugly. Oof, boy, yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't have even said that on Some air. Some might have said this one was ugly, but you know what? I think that we're getting better uh, as, as time goes on. We're like a fine wine, Ben. Yeah, you know, age like wine, not like milk. Well, when we look back, you know, in our in our dog sled rearview mirrors, oh, boy. Uh, we find that, uh, you know, the early episodes <laughs> oh. were a little tough going. They were, uh, they were a little forced. Um, but we got there, right? Yeah, I think the uh, throughout our career with car stuff, you guys, we only have one episode that we were ever recording that we decided not to publish. You remember that one? I, I do. I can't believe you're bringing that up right now. Yeah, it's true, though. <laughs> and we'll never divulge what that is. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll tell Kurt later. He doesn't know. Uh, so let us know. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We hope you tune in for our future episodes. No spoilers, but we have a episode about spoilers i'm kidding no we don't have an episode about spoilers yet this huge treasure trove of topics we want to cover so we also want to hear from you if you have suggestions for topics you feel that your fellow listeners would enjoy in the future and thanks for listening everyone we'll see you next time car stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's how stuff works for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.